So yeah, we're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount uh, in Matthew 5. I just want to, before we jump in, I do want to kind of remind you of kind of an overview, bird's eye view of what we're expecting uh, from the Sermon on the Mount. And so uh, the next slide, Marilyn, is our, our kind of overview slide. The first thing to remember is Jesus is going to be preaching the kingdom of heaven. He's going to tell us what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. The kingdom of heaven is never going to be fully here until he returns. Um, that's not how the kingdom of heaven works, okay? The, uh, the kingdom of heaven is, is, is like little, little bits, little, little communities getting together and trying to live in light of this teaching and really all of Jesus' teaching in the gospels. Um, and it's trending, okay? It's trending. Wherever, every generation, there's going to be people out there. Every generation, there's going to be people who are excited to hear the message. They're excited to, to be a part of a little kingdom community um, and, 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 and kind of take advantage of this new vision of what life is like. Who are these people? Well, they're common folk, all right, it's uh, the, this, the kingdom of heaven isn't super attractive to people who are addicted um, to power and prestige and sex and wealth. Those are th- that's not the people who get pumped about the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven actually is it's uh, like a roller coaster. It's upside down. Okay, uh, in the world, right? In the world, who wins? It's the people who are powerful and corrupt and you know, lie, cheat, and steal, get what they want. That's, that's the, the, the darkness. That's what, that's what the world operates. The kingdom of heaven is going to be upside down from that. It's going to be completely opposite. And so it's the people, the people who want like a, a counterculture, a truly revolutionary way of doing life. Those are the people who get excited about the kingdom of heaven. And so let's hear, uh, this is Jesus kind of giving a programmatic statement about us. It's anyone who is a Jesus follower, this message is for you. And remember, he's giving this to common folks, right? They're, they're sitting, he's sitting down to teach and people are just normal people are there and he's saying this to them, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's not good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Just so you know, salt doesn't actually lose its saltiness. That's not something that actually happens. Salt uh, retains its saltiness until it is, I don't know, digested. Um, but what if it did, right? What if, what if there was a shelf life on salt? Well, as soon as it stops doing what it's supposed to do, get rid of it. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Well, let's, let's, let's delve in. Let's kind of pay really close attention to the language that Jesus is using, okay? The first thing, you are the salt of the earth. It's ironic that the, in English, salt of the earth tends to mean like normal people. I mean, like, you know, you're, you're from a, you're, you're normal, you're, you're common. What Jesus is saying is the opposite. He's saying you're crazy uncommon, okay? You might be lowly in, in the world's terms, but you are super, super special in the universe. You have a special mission to salt the earth, I was browsing on Amazon for a recipe book uh, because I am overweight. And I found a recipe book that no one should buy ever. And here's a picture of it. 
It's called the No Salt Cookbook. Now, if you're going to sell a cookbook and you're going to have a cover picture, you probably want something that doesn't look like feces. That's probably a bad way to sell your book. And yet, these people, that's, that's the, and they had to. They had to because if you don't have salt in something, it's horrible. Have you ever tried to eat something without salt? I, I did once, and it was awful. Like, you know, so Erin, Erin's an incredible cook. She's really gifted. Um, she's, she makes eggs, and that's it. But her eggs are outstanding. One of the reasons they're outstanding is that she puts the proper amount of salt on eggs. I'm terrible. I always oversalt. I'm like, ooh, more. <laughs> you get me in the kitchen. I'm like, oh boy, this, 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 this. I get real excited about it. Erin has restraint. And as a result, it's just, it's just perfect every time she makes scrambled eggs or eggs of any kind, really. They, they just, they're just right. And so imagine what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you, you, you lowly people, you're the most interesting people in the world. I, what, what the world needs is for you to be sprinkled in just the right amount everywhere. If you, if, if we, if we have people who are you, you, you Jesus followers, if we put you Jesus followers in, in, in every institution, in every uh, community, in every family, and if we just sprinkle you in, you are going to make the world flavorful. You're going to bring light life. You're going to enhance any place that you go. Now, this isn't just, this is Jesus followers, people who are actually trying to live this way, not people who just, you know, believe in Jesus and then that's, that, that's it. But if you are a Jesus follower, then, then you are going to be, you're going to make everything that you are a part of better. That's a bold claim. But I ask you this, I mean, so, you know, the, this country was founded primarily by um, types of Christians, right? Protestants, Catholics. Um, and that was kind of like the, the culture of, of, the, of America for, you know, a couple hundred years. But starting in the 20th century, there began to be like a pretty strong movement to kind of, I, would, I don't want to say de-Christianize, but at least make space for people who aren't Christians, right? And to avoid offending them. And so as a result, there were different Supreme Court decisions, different laws were passed. And so as a result, over the last, say, 50 to 60, well, now probably 70 years, um, our institutions that are public, our public institutions have become very much less Christian, right? In fact, it's illegal um, to be like, you know, proselytizing or trying to get people to become Christians, say, in a public school, right? You can't do that. And so as a result, the people who work in public schools, many of whom are here, uh, may be Christians, but you kind of have to like soft pedal it, right? You don't want to be too offensive, right? And so I wonder, is, is, is there anybody here who's like, man, how much better have the public schools gotten in the last 70 years? Like, man, they're great, right? Like, wow. Wasn't it awesome when COVID hit and, and we just, public school kids were forced to stay home for two years? That was dynamite. I mean, there's a lot of forces at work, so I don't want to like go completely over the top here, but I, 
it, maybe there's a correlation. Yes, I know causation and correlation may not be, you know, together. But isn't it odd that our public schools are, are sadly in some cases the worst in the world? Um, and, I, and I just wonder, I wonder what's driving that. Really, any institution, you, uh, it's not just uh, public schools, our, our corporations, right? Our corporations in this country uh, are becoming uh, increasingly secular. Uh, people are, are expected to kind of keep their faith, like, you know, private, right? It's not something that you're going to be sharing or talking about or living out in the workplace. Um, and and I, I just, does anyone think that, like, like corporations have become, I don't know, less greedy in the last 50 years? I wonder if what's happening in our culture is that that Jesus says, I'm going to sprinkle you everywhere. But we're either being pushed out or silenced. And I'm wondering if that's having a negative impact on our culture. The first thing in your note sheets about salt is that Jesus' followers make their communities taste good. They make, when, when, when people who are after Jesus are a part of a community, man, it's lively. There's something that, that we bring, truth, hope, justice, goodness, righteousness. We bring these things and we elevate the communities around us. And that brings up a couple of questions. The first is this, what flavor do you bring to family, work, church, teams, whatever? And to expand the metaphor a little bit here, I'm like maybe your paprika, you know, maybe your thyme or rosemary, but whatever you, wherever you go, are you changing the flavor of the community that you're a part of? Are you making it more joyful? Are you making it more hopeful? Are you bringing peace? Are you doing these things? Are you, are you salting? Are you flavoring the people around you? And if so, what kinds of flavors are you bringing? What is it that you bring to these communities that do change them? And similarly, maybe, uh, maybe you're not, right? Maybe you're looking at it and you're like, I don't really bring a whole lot. I mean, I punch the clock. I, I get it done. Um, but maybe there's, there's, you know, a, maybe there's giftings that you have that your family isn't experiencing. You could be sharing it with your family, but you're not. Or your, your work, the gifts that you have that could change the flavor of the work. And yet, but you're, you're holding it back. You're not, you're not using it. In, it's worth thinking, what can I bring to the team? Let's go on to a uh, light, right? You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light up a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, let it shine, give light to everyone. What does that mean to, to shine? Well, it, it, it means to act and live in such a way that people around you who are not believers see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. They, they're like, they're like, wow. This person's the real deal. This person's bringing something incredible, something powerful. And now I, I'm, I'm inclined to be like, man, the, the God they're serving might be real. I have a picture here of the Croc de Chevalier. This is a, uh, it's an ancient fortress in Syria. 
It's uh, one of the best preserved uh, medieval fortresses. It was founded by um, the uh, the Kurdish Christians and the Crusaders in 11, 1170. So 1170 AD was when it started. It was taken over. Uh, it was conquered by Muslims in like 1240. Uh, but over the, the centuries, it has remained incredibly intact. Uh, in fact, um, in the early 20th century, people, the, the world was becoming very unstable. Uh, there was World War I. And during World War I, locals actually kind of started a new community. They, 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 in, they invaded. They entered the fortress and tried to make it a living place. Why did they do that? Because look at where this place is situated. It's high up on a hill. Right? So it's hard for invaders to get there. They have to come up a hill on all sides where they're being rained. So you're, it's safe, right? It's protected. And so when the midst of, of crazy wars going on, people are like, I, I need to get safe. I need to find a place where I can have shelter. Most um, medieval uh, villages, really all throughout ancient history, um, really up until modern times with modern technology has changed how war is done. But up until modern warfare te- technology, almost every city or, or major location uh, had a fortress. And it was almost always situated either against like a mountain or on top of a hill if, it, if that was available. Because what it did is it made it so that you could live around it. Fortresses aren't huge. But if... if, if Invaders started coming in, right? You could look up and you would know that's safety, right? I can get there if I, if I, and, and, and no one, no one's going to miss that. No one, you're, you're, it's, it's, uh, it's absolutely not possible to miss it. Um, and, and so as you're going about your daily work, you can always look up and see the fortress and know if anything goes wrong, I have a safe haven, a beacon of hope. However, if you are an invader and you are seeking to conquer, what's the one thing you're definitely going to see and lay siege to? The fortress. And so for thousands of years, um, military campaigns were were based on uh, retreating to fortresses and then laying siege and trying to conquer uh, fortresses. When Jesus calls uh, us a city on a hill, and by the way, we literally are that. Um, when uh, during COVID, a lot, of, a lot of people were concerned that the black helicopters were coming, and they were like, "Dude, Coast Bible Church is a great place to hold out against, you know, all of our enemies." And I was like, "Yeah, it is. Like, we have a great location. You should go out there and check out. Like, we could really hold off, you know, a lot of." No, we couldn't. I, maybe some of you could. I'd surrender quickly. But, but we we are literally a city on a hill. You can't drive past us and not see us. Now, for some people, that brings hope, right? For some people, like, oh, there's, there's a place of light, a place of hope. So if things go bad, I know where safety is. But other people pass by, and because they are slaves of darkness, they see this place and they think, target. You can't hide the light. Jesus says, he says, you can't, you're a city on a hill, you can't be hidden. 
If you're out there and you are actually living out, you're following Jesus and you're doing those good deeds that he's talking about, you become a beacon of hope for the people around you or a target for those who seek our destruction. Next thing on your note sheets. Jesus' followers shine. We become a beacon of hope and a target. There's a danger to following Jesus out loud. But there's also incredible opportunity and incredible hope. Which brings up a couple of questions. The first is this. Who are you a beacon to? Who is it? I mean, and this could be other people of faith, but it could also be people who are kind of on the edge. Maybe they've been dechurched or burned or, um, or they're just unchurched, but they're, they're open to the possibility of being a part of Jesus, you know, team. Who is that in your life that you are a beacon of hope to? And if the answer is no one, you might not be shining very brightly. A second question there is, has your light made you a target? If you're shining brightly, there's going to be people who come after you. Has that happened? Are you the sort of, I have friends who uh, live in or work in corporations and they, (laughs) they have to be very, very careful about how out loud they live their Jesus following because, (laughs) because they could get fired. If, uh, if people around them felt that they had views that were, you know, extremist or whatever. And so a lot of us do this with this last question is how we, we hide our lights to kind of get along, right? We don't want to shake things up. We don't want to be too offensive. And I get that. I'm, I'm, I'm not like walking around being like, let's, you know, turn over all the tables and piss everybody off. Like, I, I don't, that's not my thing. But I wonder if in this culture we don't go too far, where we hide a little bit too much, and as a result, become less beacon-like, because we're worried about being targets. Salt and light. Now, if you were one of the people who was, you know, sitting there hearing Jesus speak this message, you would have gone crazy. You would have been blown away. You would have been like, that is bold. Why? I want you to pay attention uh, to this one phrase from the text. You are the light of the world. That sounds really cool, but Jesus didn't invent that. Jesus is quoting somebody here. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah. I want you to see where he's quoting. He's quoting, uh, there's two places in Isaiah where uh, the prophet claims, uh, speaks for God and says this, this thing. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. A covenant for the people, that's an interesting phrase. But what it means is, Israel is destined to be faithful to the people around her. Israel is destined to be faithful to people who don't follow Yahweh. And as Israel does that, Israel is going to become a light. And so Gentiles means it's world or nations in the, in the original languages. All of the world, all of the nations are going to see Israel as a powerful light. 
This one's even, uh, I think, more interesting. This is Isaiah 49. He, Yahweh, says, It's too small a thing for you just to be my servant and restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back Israel that I've kept. Uh, he's speaking to exiles. He's like, it would, I mean, yes, it's important to bring Israel back together, but that, that is too small a thing. That's too small a job. That's too small a mission for you. So I'm going to expand your mission. I'm going to make you a light for the world. I'm going to make you a light for the nations, the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I am going to bring about all justice, all hope, all peace through you. Unfortunately, Israel uh, never did that. Israel never made it, never quite became the light to the nations that they've been promised. And so when Jesus says, you... You who follow me are the light of the world. He's saying you are the real Israel. You are the true chosen of God. You have been given an, a mission that is the most important mission in all of history and humanity. You have been tasked with bringing about all of the world to come to know God. The real God, the true God, the creator God. You have been tasked with bringing the whole world to come to know grace and mercy. You have been tasked for the whole world with showing what it looks like to be truly loved. Every once in a while, I share with you my first car because it was the best car I ever had. 1992 Mustang, convertible. What I may not have shared is that, that this car uh, came to be mine because my father went through a midlife crisis. He, uh, he, he turned 45, and he had completely reinvented his life. He had gone from doing all sorts of different things to being like a, a Bible-believing Christian and then being a teacher in Christian schools, uh, a history teacher. He had completely changed his life. And, and I think it was kind of joking. I don't think he really had a midlife crisis, but that's what he said. I think to justify what he thought in his mind was kind of a frivolous purchase, he really didn't need that 92 Mustang. But he was like, you know, why not? I deserve it. For me, when I turn 45, I'm probably going to get a Tesla. That'll be my midlife crisis car. Um, we'll see. Who knows? I've still got a couple of years. Midlife crisis is a real thing. It's, it's not, uh, it's not uh, sometimes it's really not to be a joking matter because there are people who go through a period where really in your 40s, um, you begin to realize, oh my gosh, I'm going to die. <laughs> like for real. There can be pre-midlife crises. So for uh, the, the younger ones here, you know, the high schoolers, you're like, where do I go in life? I don't know. What's my purpose? The midlife crisis is like, I thought I knew my purpose and I've been doing all the things that I'm supposed to do. And yet I feel strangely unfulfilled and my body's breaking down. And I'm worried that I'm not leaving the mark that I thought I was going to leave. If there's anybody here who is struggling with that, you're... you're, you're you're wondering, why am I here? What is this all about? They say that uh, midlife crises and, and really any identity crisis, really they, they start in um, tragic things happening, right? So typically like someone will start get sick, really sick, right? In their 40s for the first time. Like, oh my gosh, this one could be it, you know? And that, that changes the way you think. You're like, oh my gosh, this isn't going well. 
Or maybe you have, you know, you, you, you get fired after so many years working for the company and you're like, where's the loyalty? At a certain point, we all question, why am I here? What is this about? Well, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are tasked with helping me save the universe. There can be no higher calling. And for those of us who are are thinking, oh, well, you know, in order to get through this, in order to find meaning and purpose, I'll just go to the things that everyone goes to. Money, power, sex, all the things, uh, wealth, all all that. that that that's gonna no it won't it won't fulfill you it's not gonna you 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 have a, a god's shaped hole in your heart and it can only be filled by his love and what's even more is the purpose that he gives us is the truest purpose that a human heart can ever follow and have last thing your note sheets jesus followers are destined to help save the world this is your destiny jesus doesn't say you might be the light of the world He doesn't say, have you thought about being the light of the world? No, he says, you are the light of the world. When you follow me, when you do as I say, when you try to live this out, you are in the process. You are in the midst of saving the universe. You think that what you're supposed to be doing is what? Raising kids, um, you know, trying to make rent in South Orange County. um, To say nothing of mortgages. You know, these are the things we think that we're doing. And Jesus says, yeah, those are part of it. But really, when it gets down to it, you have been called to save the world. That's awesome. Like who, who, who's sitting there watching Star Wars, right? The first one. My children uh, will be the death of me. Olivia 10 was telling me that um, the best Star Wars movie was... um, the uh, the force awakens because it had Ray in it. Now, I, I'm proud to say that I didn't hit her. Um, I restrained myself. Um, but I, th- for those of us who are sane, we know that there was nothing quite like seeing Luke Skywalker sitting there in the desert, and the two suns or moons or whatever of Tatooine are there, and he's wondering, what? Why am I here? Am I just, you know, going to be a moisture farmer my whole life? Or is there some destiny out there that I can fulfill? Is there a way that I can be a hero? Is there, is there some purpose that can hold me and give me hope? It's like this powerful thing. It's, it's buried in every single one of us. Men especially. And Jesus is saying, you have this purpose. You have this destiny. Light the world up. Light up the world. There's a couple of questions then, yeah? Do you know your destiny? Has it been lost? Are you wondering whether or not you can continue? Well, Jesus is saying, I know your destiny. Light up the world. Second question. How are you doing? Are you lighting up the world? If so, how? And if not, maybe there's more for you. Maybe, maybe there is more that you can be doing where people will look at you and say, 
goodness gracious, his or her God is the real God. We're starting a new thing here at Coast. Uh, We've got the prayer and care team now. Um, And if you look back, there's a table there that says prayer team. Um, Today, uh, Bill and Rachel Koblenz have volunteered and what, what we're doing is we're just making an opportunity, an opportunity for if you need someone to talk to you or you need some, someone to pray for you or you need some, some just to listen or to maybe even, you know, commit to spending some time with you during the week, something like that. If you're going through it right now, here are a couple of people who are willing to pray for you now and willing to see, to make sure that you don't just, you know, get lost, now, I know it can be a little awkward uh, to do stuff like that, and I get that. That's okay. And maybe it's going to be a while before we get into the habit, the regular habit of having people pray for That's okay. That's okay. But I want you to know that today uh, you can go back there. It's, they're they're going to head back there as soon as I um, finish praying and as the worship team comes and, uh, and leads us in our, in our response song. And they're just going to be there. You, so if you have, if you have that, if you, if you have a need, if you're wondering about whether or not you're salt or light, if you're wondering about your purpose, if you're wondering about who you are and you want to share and you want to have someone care for you, there for you. Brothers and sisters, let's light up the world. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we praise you for calling us to the greatest mission that's ever been given to save the world, to be salt and light, to make uh, the communities that we're a part of taste good, to be those who are willing to do the things that Jesus did and to bring about righteousness and goodness so that others, so that the whole world might look and be like, wow, wow. God, protect us as we become more salty and more lit. Because as you said, we can't be hidden when we do that. And when that happens, we might become targets. Protect us, God. And give us the resources in this community to protect each other and to hold each other up when, when things get tough. Sprinkle us outside these walls, Father. Sprinkle us everywhere you want us to be. Let us bring light and life to the world in your name. Jesus, we love you. In your name we pray, amen.